Welcome to episode 38 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. My name is Trey Whetstone, and I am your host coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And in this episode, I'm looking to kick off probably a series I'm going to run through the future every now and then. And this is like an anniversary episode. So in these anniversary episodes, I'm going to pick a movie that has an anniversary sometime within the year of 2023 and going in intervals of five. So it's either, you know, a 10, 15, 20, 25, so on and so forth and run down the history of it. Now, these are usually going to be very much uh, what I want to say is there has to be a lot of history and information about them. It can't just be. You know, something like, for instance, The Faculty is a movie that is having its 25th anniversary this year, but can you really take The Faculty and say, hey, we know a ton about this movie, and historically, and there's an interesting story behind the making of it, and or does it have like some profound impact on the industry? And I don't think either of those are true. So... Even though I love a movie like that, I don't know if it fits necessarily in one of these types of episodes. So for this first one, I am doing Night of the Living Dead, which is having its 55th anniversary. And it's crazy to think that this one is older than most of the you know older members of our horror community who have been out there podcasting for a while. Like This is older than Greg Amortis. This is older than uh, Pastor Matt. To think that there's a movie that has been out there before any of the people really talking about horror movies were born, it's just kind of surreal to think about it. And I know that's not anything new or profound, but but that's just this enigma of movies. And the fact that something could last this long and be this beloved for this long is a pretty profound statement on you know what horror movies are to us, what movies are to us in general how they're passed down, how we see things. If everyone was just watching new movies all the time, no one would be talking about this movie. If everyone was just watching movies that came out in their lifespan, you know, you're watching movies organically as you grow up, there would be very few people actually talking about this movie because no one would have really grown up organically with this that is podcasting, at least not that I know of, but... Yeah, this is a seminal film, and it's a very important film. And I want to say right off the top that there are going to be some kind of spoilers. I'm not going to go through like a plot summary or anything like that. But I'm definitely going to be talking about elements in the movie and uh, different things, assuredly, around the ending. And we'll definitely be talking about the impact that this movie has made. So it's going to go down like this, and this is not going to be too unfamiliar territory. It's going to be very similar to a lot of my episodes where I'm going to run down the history of Night of the Living Dead. And then maybe similar more to the episode I did with Cat People, I'm going to talk deeper about some of the themes within this movie and expound upon what it did. Mostly I'm going to talk about what it did for the horror industry as a whole. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and start in on the history of Night of the Living Dead. While going to college at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, 
which I'm sure you've heard of from this story before, but Carnegie Mellon's a pretty prestigious school up that way. As someone who went to uh, college in western Pennsylvania, you knew about Carnegie Mellon. I mean, it's a pretty renowned school in the area. But he went to uh, Carnegie Mellon, and Romero really got his start from here directing with the formation of the Leighton Image, which was a company that he co-founded with his friends John Russo and Russell Striner. They mainly did direct TV commercials, but Romero also directed shorts for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was ran out of Pittsburgh at a local station at the time. And I have to add one piece of clarification here. The uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood stuff I wanted to include up here with the TV commercials, but that actually, I mean, that show did not start until 1968, so a lot of that was probably happening around or after the time that Night of the Living Dead released. They soon grew tired of this, and looking to cash in on some of the more bizarre movie trends at the time, they wanted to make a horror movie. They felt audiences had a thirst for the weird and kind of genre off-the-wall things, so that's where they were going to go in at. They reached out to Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman, who were the president and vice president of the Pittsburgh film firm called Hardman Associates. This group of five plus five more members started Image 10, and you can see where they get the name from. Uh, this was to be Romero's production company, and the movie was going to have a budget of $6,000, and that would be collecting 600 from each member of Image 10. So I'm going to stop right there, and I really love this grassroots funding type thing. It's very much like, hey, ask your Uncle Harry if he's got $600 laying around or something like that. I feel like that's what's going on here. Everyone that is in this company, the 10 board members that they, you know, they are, they're all involved in this financially somehow. They're all producers, and we'll get in a little more later, but they're all kind of involved in getting this thing off the ground. They found another 10 investors in order to double their budget, but soon they found out that 12000 wasn't going to be nearly enough to make this movie. After all was said and done and they you know, went out and raised a lot more money, they ended up getting a budget of 114000 which doesn't seem like a whole lot at the time, and it really wasn't. It'd be the equivalent of like, and you know, inflation's crazy, but it'd probably be still under a million dollars today, around eight, dollars $900,000. So still, I think it's a pretty decent-sized budget for an independent film. It's very much on par with... I mean, there are still horror movies that get million-dollar budgets. Um, I think it's on par with that, but... The first draft of the script that Russo and Romero put together was for a horror comedy titled Monster Flick, which would feature teenage aliens coming to Earth and making friends with human teenagers. This was scrapped in favor of a revised version, which saw... A young man run away from home only to stumble across human remains that a group of aliens used for food. Russo came up with the idea that the aliens should be flesh eaters. So I think this is where it all started. You always It's interesting to see where something starts and where it goes to. And you can definitely see scraps of you know the final Night of the Living Dead stuff. You've got the sci-fi stuff in here with the aliens and you've got the flesh-eating stuff. So I think they found a balance and merged it, figured out what direction they wanted to go in, and then that's how we end up with the final Night of the Living Dead. The final script was written by Russo in just three days in 1967. 
This version focused on the recently deceased returning to life. It's said that they had to focus on the recently dead because they couldn't afford to show these ghouls coming out of their graves. They didn't have the budget for that. In a later interview, Romero described how the script morphed into a three-part horror anthology at one point. Only the first would serve as the basis for Night of the Living Dead, with the other two providing the foundation for Dawn and Day of the Dead. So let's just stop right there for a minute. How interesting, this is one of the most interesting things I dug up, pun definitely intended, when I was putting together this episode, is they wrote out, and you know, you have all kinds of that stuff now, is where you're planning a trilogy, you're planning a series of films, you know you're going to get more than one. So you write that in and have some continuity, but how cool is it that they sat down and at one point they had a script that had the foundations of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. And it kind of speaks to the nature of how different those films are and they're set in different places, they have different characters, is it was supposed to be an anthology that shows, you know, different points or at least different characters and situations living with these uh, living dead. Romero had written a short story based on Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, and I think this is where a lot of the idea comes from for Night of the Living Dead. Romero thought the film was about a revolution, where the whole world was changing and one man was holding out against the change that swept through. He thought that that idea was great, but wanted to start at the beginning of the revolution, so instead where I Am Legend, you're thrown kind of into the middle of that and there's you know, these vampire creatures all around, there's one man left. Romero's saying, wouldn't it be more interesting if we started at the very beginning and see how that world came to pass? He was mostly interested in seeing how it would progress and how people put in that situation would react when they didn't really have any solid foundation or footing or knowing really what was going on. He also couldn't use vampires since Matheson did, so the modern incarnation of the zombie was born. Matheson has gone on record saying that he thought Romero's adaptation was kind of cornball, and he didn't care for it. But what does he know? I mean, no, all, all joking aside, what's Matheson supposed to say in this situation? Like, someone took his base ideas, talking about how he based it on his story, but it takes it in a completely different direction. Like, you don't... I mean, Stephen King clearly didn't like The Shining adaptation, even though that is a masterful movie as well. The script was seen as more of a working script and was rewritten during the filming process. I think you hear about this a lot where they're doing rewrites or reworks on the script as the movie goes along, especially in the more independent ones where there's more freedom to move and make things work as other things change. Carl Hardman, who by the way, seems to be very talkative about this movie. There's a lot of interviews and stuff where they talk to Carl Hardman about this, but um, he said the character of Ben was originally written as an uneducated truck driver. However, when the very educated Dwayne Jones was picked for the lead role, he refused to take the role as is. He changed his dialogue to represent how he thought the character should present himself, and I think it turned out pretty good. You know, there's a line in this movie that I love where it's not anything profound or anything life-changing or anything like that but they're at a point when you know he's boarding up the house they're listening to the newscast and they're saying hey stay in your homes don't try to leave 
And he says, hey, that's us. We're doing all right. Or we're doing okay. And he's trying to calm down Barbara. And I just love that line. It just feels so natural. And it's nothing special, but in the moment, it just feels like it fits. According to Judith O'Day, most of the dialogue was improvised. They were given instructions on what needed to happen in the scene and were almost turned loose from that point. And O'Day, by the way, played the aforementioned Barbara. If you're not aware, in a specific anecdote, O'Day recalled, The sequence where Ben is breaking up the table to block the entrance, and I'm on the couch and start telling him the story of what happened to Johnny, it's all ad-libbed. This is what we want to get across. Tell the story about me and Johnny in the car, and me being attacked. That was it. All improv. We filmed it once. There was a concern we didn't get the sound right, but fortunately they were able to use it. So yeah, there's kind of a scene where she's rambling on, and I feel like, listen, people like to criticize Barbara in this movie, and they want, you know, what, they want a badass heroine in this story or something like that, but the... Fact of the matter is, I think it's a little blown out of proportion, and I think, and maybe this is a little controversial, but people deal with grief and in different situations, especially distressful situations like this, in completely different ways. Yeah, she just completely shuts down at some point. I mean, she's there for a minute, she gets progressively worse, but I think that tells kind of a story of how she does get progressively worse as things are sinking in and things are getting worse. People deal with this stuff in different ways. Ben is much more common collected for the most part. And that's how he's dealing with the situation. And then you get something like Mr. Cooper, who does not deal with it well at all, because, you know, he's yelling at people and he's angry and it's got to be his way or the highway, but he's doing it in a very different way of not dealing well at all with Barbara. And, you know, everyone in this movie is dealing with the situation much different. You know, everyone seems like a fish out of water except for the characters of Tom and Judy, really, who live in the area and are from the area and came to the house because they know the area. But you have to remember that she watched her brother die in front of her, and it seems like that's about all she has in the world. You know, she's not too keen on her mother or her mother's... I don't know what's going on with her mom, but it seems like... Johnny is the biggest part of her life, and she has to watch him killed right in front of her, and then have the revelation that it's not someone shooting him, it's not anything like that. It's this ghoul who has risen from the dead and attacks him and kills him, and now there's these things around, and you know she's in this farmhouse where she runs into somebody, and then there's more people that come in. I'm sure it's a very overwhelming situation, so I don't want to sit there and make excuses, but I think it's very natural, especially this scene in particular, where she's just rambling on. It's very uncomfortable because you can tell that Ben is getting annoyed with her at this point. He's trying to board this place up, make it safe. He's trying to get her to calm down, but he realizes I'm in this alone at this point, so I can see where the frustration is building in him. And you can see where she's just kind of slowly losing it a little bit or going into a distressed state because she's just telling this story all the way from the beginning. I mean, she gives details that you probably don't need to, but I think that's all her way of dealing with the situation. And maybe you disagree. I didn't find her annoying or anything that I've heard people lobby about at her over the years. 
I think she did a decent enough job. You have to realize that, yes, she is one of the first characters we see. That doesn't necessarily mean she's the main driving force. It's actually kind of different how we see her start out in the beginning and how she does go. She shuts down. So I don't have a problem with that in general. I mean, everyone else there, we don't know Ben's background. Maybe he doesn't have anyone in this movie. But, you know, Tom and Judy, they have each other. They're both there. And, you know, she is concerned about her parents, and you get that. But you also have, you know, the Coopers, and they have their daughter, and that is the most important thing to both of them, you can tell, because their marriage is kind of falling apart and everything. They are focused on their daughter, and she is sick in everything. And honestly, how heartbreaking is it? Maybe it's just me because I have two daughters, but how heartbreaking is it when the child says, I hurt mommy or something? It's something along those lines. And yeah, that's just, uh, that's very frightening and devastating. But the point is, is that they've got what they care about there. Barbara had seemingly what she cares about the most taken away from her right in front of her under weird circumstances. And she's trying to deal with that grief while being in a life or death situation. So maybe cut Barbara some slack, guys. All right, that was a bit of a tangent there, but I did want to get into some of the dialogue used in this film while talking about the ad-libbing. So even with the film's reputation of launching the modern zombie film, the word zombie was never used in the script, and I noticed this while watching it. This time around, I was paying much closer attention, and no, they never say the word zombie. And then I was doing some research, and it came across there as well. Well, Romero stated that he was probably somewhat inspired by the Haitian zombie lore, but felt his zombies were different enough to be considered their own thing and something new, and I think that's an understatement. I mean, I think these are very different than the Haitian zombie. So what, you know, what need would he have to use that word? You know, language changes. Zombie today, if you say zombie, people are going to automatically think of the living dead. But if you said it back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, people were going to think about the Haitian voodoo zombie. You know, someone who was under mind control and was carrying out the bidding of whoever cast the spell on them or whatever else. So it's very different. I don't know why he would ever use the word zombie. Now, I'm not sure when zombie came into the colloquial and was starting to be used. I still don't think. I'm trying to think. I mean, you do have something like Death Dream, but that's really like a monkey's paw type situation. I'm really trying to think of when zombie movies started getting big and... I don't think they did get big before at least Romero's follow-up sequel to this. So, not sure when the word came into context, but he never used it in his film. When talking about the budget, Hardman acknowledged that they knew they didn't have enough money to emulate the classic horror movies they grew up with. The best they could do was to put the cast in a remote spot and bring the horror to them. I mean, this all makes sense. I feel like a lot of times when independent films or lower-budget films fail is when they try to do too much and they just don't have the money for it or they you know, they run out of money at some point. So, yeah, you're not going to be able to compete with what the studios were doing with the movies you grew up with. You're just going to have to do the best you can. I think that they took a simple premise. They said, we're going to have these people at this farmhouse and we're going to have to bring the horror to them. They're not going to be able to go in separate locations a lot of the times. We're just going to have to bring it to them there. 
The filming took place in Butler County, PA, which is north of Pittsburgh, and the cemetery scene was filmed in the Evans City Cemetery. The house they used for filming was northeast of Evans City and was about to be demolished, so the crew was allowed to damage the house in whatever way because of this. Now, I haven't, um, I am very familiar with Pittsburgh. I go there usually at least once a year to see some friends, but I've never been to Butler in particular, Butler County. Um, I do know some people that are in Butler, but never been to this location at the cemetery. I know you can't go to the house because it's been demolished or was demolished shortly after filming, which is a shame, but have been to the Monroeville Mall not to see the Dawn of the Dead stuff, but just to go there in general. You know, I've got a friend that lives down the street from the Monroeville Mall, so. But let me tell you, it's probably less scary in the film Dawn of the Dead than it is in real life, at least after dark. So, yeah, if you're going to the Monroeville Mall, stick to uh, daylight hours, and, and I'm serious, there have been shootings and everything else there, so if you are going on a little uh, tourist adventure there, uh, stick to the daylight. But let's get back in. Um, at first, they only had white face makeup with black eyes for the zombies. That's all they really had around and could afford. But eventually, they were able to use mortician's wax to make the wounds and other marks on the zombies, and they could seem more realistic. But the movie was filmed out of order, so you get this smattering of each kind of the zombies throughout the film. You know, you have the simple white makeup with the black eyes, or the black around the eyes, and then you have the mortician's wax, the more detailed ones, and they're all mixed in, and I don't think it's something that I really, that really stood out to me. I mean, the most iconic of the white-faced, you know, black eye zombies was the uh, Cooper girl, at least for me. That's the one that always stands out for me, so yeah, um, next time you watch that, see if you can point out where they had the different effects and when they use the different zombies. For the body parts that the zombies were munching on and the blood effects, they used cooked ham and entrails donated by one of the cast members, and then for the blood, the chocolate syrup. So when you see them eating, they're pretty much eating, uh, you know, body, they're eating ham and <laughs> entrails uh, soaked in chocolate syrup. So that's pretty gross, but there have been grosser things that people have eaten. So yeah. High price to pay for fame there. Uh, the clothing was all either from Goodwill or from actors in the movie, so all kind of secondhand clothing. So you can tell they're, they did a lot and stretched the budget, and I don't think you could tell. It certainly helps that this thing was done in black and white. One, for the fact that it makes it just feel more like independent and guerrilla and that type of thing. But two, it's going to hide a lot of the issues that might pop up with having such a small budget. If you shoot in black and white, no one's going to notice if you're using chocolate syrup or some ham, you know, a chunk of ham when you're eating a corpse. The movie was filmed under the working titles of Night of Anubis first and then Night of the Flesh Eaters. Filming took place over six months between July of 1967 and January of 1968. The members of Image 10 were all actively involved in the film's production, from loading camera magazines and gaffing to building props and editing the film. 
The movie's opening scene with the driving car was pulled from a TV episode of the show Ben Casey. And that's not all because most of the music came from other sources too, with a vast majority of it coming from the film Teenagers from Outer Space. So using a lot of stock stuff when making this. Once the film was finished, the toughest task was still ahead of the group though. They had issues finding a distributor who would agree to show the film intact. Columbia and AIP were both interested and offered to distribute if they reshot the final scene, but Image 10 declined the offers. Romero recalled that no one that worked on it would imagine a happy ending for the film, and that seemed to be what all the Hollywood studios wanted. The Walter Reed organization, which was the head of Continental Films, agreed to show the film uncut, but it changed the name from Night of the Flesh Eaters to Night of the Living Dead, since the former was close to the title of the 1964 film The Flesh Eaters. So that seems innocuous enough, right? And seems very much just a a passe thing, but that would actually lead to most of the problems and most of the things that people know this film for and it's most famous for. So what happened is when they changed the title, they deleted the copyright notice that accompanied the film's original title, uh, which was Night of the Flesh Eaters, from the beginning of the reels. Once that happened, you know, they didn't put a copyright notice back in, and it would immediately enter public domain in the U.S., because at that time, copyright law stated that you had to place a copyright notice on the prints in order to maintain the copyright. So a little bit of a loophole there and a very unfortunate one for Romero and the Image 10 crew. It premiered in Pittsburgh on October 1st of 1968, and would go on to be one of the most profitable films ever at the time. It ended its run with $12 million domestically and around $18 million internationally, for a worldwide cum of $30 million. $30 million, and unfortunately Romero didn't see very much of that massive haul, and really wouldn't see much from any future home releases either. So it's just something where it's a shame. These people poured their blood, sweat, and tears into this. They made an incredible movie, but at the end of the day, they get nothing for it, and are really close to nothing. And I think the Walter Reed organization made out pretty well on this as far as profit. I think they did uh, pulled in most of the money, so... It's unfortunate that uh, Romero was kind of screwed out of one of the most profitable films of all time, but you know he continued to make really good films, so maybe that's how it was supposed to start. I don't know, but that's not all. You know, we we have the controversy of they're trying to find someone to distribute this um, uncut, and then they're getting no money for this because of the copyright situation. But that was not the end of the controversy around this film. So Night of the Living Dead released a month before the new MPAA rating system went into place. And because of this, children were still able to see it without any restrictions. It didn't help that they also played it as a Saturday matinee like many of the other sci-fi and horror films from that time. Roger Ebert famously took the theaters and parents to task who allowed kids to see this. He recalled his theater experience in the following quote. The kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, 
maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. It's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven. But try to remember, at that age, kids take the event on the screen very seriously, and they identify fiercely with the hero. When the hero is killed, that's not an unhappy ending, but a tragic one. Nobody got out alive. It's just over. That's all. He also said, I don't think the younger kids really knew what hit them. They were used to going to movies, sure, and they'd seen some horror movies before, sure, but this was something else. He said the film affected the audience almost immediately. So that's something you have to take into account as well, is that it is very crazy that people, that kids were able to see Night of the Living Dead without any supervision. You have to put yourself in that time. While this thing might seem tame today, it would be pretty devastating to watch as a kid. You know, you see a young girl kill her parents. You see, again, the hero die at the end, which was not really the message of most movies kids would go see at the time. It was a lot happier time back then, (laughs) I feel like, in the movies at least. They were forced to kind of be happier endings and everything. But that's just crazy to me, thinking of walking in as like a nine-year-old kid or even younger and seeing Night of the Living Dead in theaters at that time when you hadn't seen much that shocking to that point. But I can get into that later. Variety wrote at the time of release that until the Supreme Court establishes clear-cut guidelines for the pornography of violence, Night of the Living Dead will serve nicely as an outer limit definition by example. In a mere 90 minutes, this horror film casts serious aspersions on the integrity and social responsibility of its Pittsburgh-based makers, distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and exhibitors who book the picture, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema movement and about the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for this unrelieved orgy of sadism. Wow, that went some places. Yeah, so people were not happy. Um, That sounds a lot like video nasty talk right there from the video nasty episode, but uh, luckily it did not get that way in the U.S. The rating system, I mean, calm down a little bit. I absolutely get in the situation if your kid's walking into this movie. Maybe as a parent, you, uh, you don't just let your kids see whatever. See something called Night of the Living Dead, and I get to that time... At that point, it was very different than it is today. You don't have the means to necessarily research stuff. And honestly, a lot of these films, the horror films, were made specifically for kids or preteens or things like that. But yeah, that's a little um, over the top, but you see what kind of an impact this had on people. So that's a little bit of the fallout of Night of the Living Dead. But let's switch over to the aftermath from the copyright situation for a minute. Uh, Since the movie wasn't copyrighted, home media distribution of it turned into the Wild West, crescendoing with the introduction of DVD. Currently, Amazon lists 13 editions of the film on VHS, 130 on DVD, 13 on Blu-ray, including one on Blu-ray 3D, and 56 versions on Amazon Video. That is insane to think, let's just take... There are 13 versions of this on Blu-ray. Can you imagine any other films where there's just there's 13 of them on Blu-ray, let alone there's 130 across different DVD versions? Now, obviously, not all of these are still in print, but this is what Amazon lists as historically its versions. 
It's also widely available across sites like YouTube and Internet Archive. As of last month, it had received 3.4 million downloads all time on Internet Archive, and is their second highest downloaded film ever. And that's that's saying something. So this is a very it's safe to say that this is one of the most widely available movies of all time. And Internet Archive, if you've never used that, I talked about it a lot in my Val Luton episode. If a lot of these films aren't streaming, a lot of these older films, even in the 70s and stuff films, you can find them. Search on Internet Archive every once in a while if you can't find them. It's a completely legal site, and you're pretty safe to watch the movies there if you can't find them anywhere else. But anyway, I digress. So, I mean, yes, it's a bad thing they didn't get the money, but this is probably one of the most widely circulated horror films and most widely seen horror films that there are. In 2018, Criterion and Janus Films finally put out a definitive edition on Blu-ray, and I recommend that everyone picks up that version. This is the one that I watched this time around, and the difference is night and day. It seriously is. I mean, it's a it's an incredible print. They got it from the Museum of Modern Art, and I think, honestly, the music is so... I think it fits in so well with this one. Some of these versions, they just have random music and stuff with it and there's different <laughs> different problems i this is the best version by far i've i've seen i've probably seen three or four different versions of this movie over the years and i know i have a version on dvd but i will say and i watched this on hbo max because i do not have the criterion blu-ray yet but i will they changed the title the uh, font of the title of this movie, and it kind of looks like it's coming from, like, Price is Right, uh, the old Price is Right, and that kind of was weird to me, but anyway, um, yeah, absolutely pick up the Criterion one if you haven't seen that one, because it's much better than any of the other versions that I've seen out there. All right, so that kind of wraps up the history portion that I have on this in the background. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the movie now and its effect on the industry and give my review of it and what I thought of it and get into all that. So first I want to talk about the aspects of this movie that have really had an impact and a lasting impact on the horror genre. I think in order to do this, we have to take a look at what was going on at the time and the kind of horror movies that were coming out. I've already alluded to this a little bit, but I think if we're talking about really Let's look at it from a couple different aspects. If we're looking at it from a general angle of horror movies, then I think really at the time, what you have coming out are... If it's coming from a studio, it's probably pretty hokey and cheesy and not necessarily, you know, a very scary movie. But we had also coming out of Europe at the time, we did have Bava's films coming out of Italy... And those were mainly gothic films, I would say. I don't think... I'm trying to think back. Blood and Black Lace was pretty violent. So I could definitely see that being in leagues with this. And then you have in the UK, you've got the Hammer films, which are still kind of over the top. Now, when we get to the later 60s, they're putting more sex. They're putting more of that violence and exploitation and everything. But I don't necessarily think that the realism is there. And that's the big thing about this, and it kind of kicked off 
or at least I would say, it kicks off this string of very realistic, down-to-earth, and really grounded films that are set a lot of times in America. And if we want to talk about some of those, I mean, yes, it does take a little while to get into this kind of stuff, but we're talking about the American horror film, because at this point in the 60s, I would say to an overwhelming degree that Europe is really leading the charge in horror, and I think that even kicks off a little bit into the early 70s with the Giallo movement and all of that stuff. But you've got Romero's film in 68. And if we're talking these more realistic, more disturbing films, you can skip to probably something like Last House on the Left in 72 by Craven. You've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 73 by Hooper. You've got Black Christmas, which... I mean, honestly, I don't know where that film is set, and it is a Canadian production by Bob Clark, but I think it fits the mold here. Um, You've got, continuing on, you have something like The the Town That Dreaded Sundown, which seems very, like, gritty and realistic kind of style, but mainly what I'm trying to say is you get a lot of these more realistic horror movies and these more disturbing things, and I think Night of the Living Dead While there is some fantastical elements, I think that kicks it off. Because you do have just normal people who have something happen. Now, yeah, listen, I know. There's sci-fi, there's all that kind of stuff in it. But I really do think that the way this movie was shot, it gives you that kind of gorilla feel. I mean, yeah, Last House on the Left is realistic, but do you think some of the stuff that happens in that movie would really happen in real life? Or uh, So yeah, this is probably the most sci-fi of those, but I think it starts that trajectory where we get a more gritty and real uh, feel to things. Now, you want to talk about another aspect of the film, and that is the gore. Now, we've already had films like, I think, like Psycho and the Birds. The Birds especially was pushing some of the violence that was going on. Hitchcock was always pushing boundaries. But then you get the splatter films from Herschel Gordon Lewis, which honestly were made for, you know, 10 bucks and are pretty cheesy and hokey. But um, they were going for that kind of gore and that kind of movie. And then I think you have this movie. And I think that is the next one to take the next step in the Gore, and again, moving back to this, is a realistic movement of that gore. I think we see a lot of that, and that would carry over in the 70s, later 70s, for sure. In the 80s with the slashers and stuff, you start seeing gore trying to outdo itself. You've got Savini out there making these great effects and everything. But honestly, I think that can all be traced back to Night of the Living Dead being the runaway success it was, doing the certain type of thing it did. It's really, you know, you see the ushering in of these younger filmmakers who are out there and they don't really have any limits on themselves. They don't really have any restrictions. They're just out there trying to make movies that are going to be real and scare people. So, yeah, you do have, like I said, the 60s aren't devoid of great American horror movies. You do have Rosemary's Baby. You do have Psycho. You do have The Birds. And I would put, you know, really... Rosemary's Baby is absolutely distressing and disturbing um, and deals with a very real issue while having that supernatural around it, but it doesn't feel as gritty and as real as Night of the Living Dead. So 
yes, there's some great stuff coming out, but I think Night of the Living Dead is very important to that indie movement that's going to happen in horror. So if we talk about that, we have to talk about the advent of the zombie. And again, zombie is not used anywhere in this movie at all. I think when Romero was asked about it one time, he said, no, when I, I didn't really think of them as zombies at first. You know, when I think of a zombies, I think of those guys doing wet work for Bella Lugosi down in the Caribbean, I think was the quote, or I'm probably paraphrasing there, but something along those lines. So he's very aware of the Haitian zombie, like I had talked about, and doesn't think these really fit that mold, at least initially. Now, I would say, again, we don't get any deeper into the sci-fi element, and if you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about, and I've been kind of dancing around it this whole time, is the main thing that brings these creatures, these people, back to life from the dead, really it's because of a space probe that was coming back from Venus and exploded in the atmosphere, and they're theorizing in this movie, they never tell you any you know, concrete answers, but we see this all through the TV segments, which I do want to get into. But essentially, that is what they're theorizing has caused, you know, the radiation from that is causing these people to rise from the grave. That is very much like a space sci-fi thing, and I don't know about you, but when I think about zombies, I'm thinking about you know, just reanimated dead, there's never usually, it's either like, you know, modern times, it's like a virus or something has happened, or, you know, you think about, I think Romero went more in that way with something like the crazies. But this is one of the times where we get a background for these zombies, and it is, uh, you know, celestial. It is something out in space that has caused these people to rise from the dead, and as much as the military general or advisor, whoever it is, wants to deny that or say, wait until we have more information, it seems very likely that these things are coinciding together. So this is a very different kind of zombie. It's different from the Haitian zombie, and I think it's different from the modern you know, virus or rage virus or anything like that zombie. But still, this is the one that propelled the zombie into popular culture. I think it would take a while, but Romero is definitely the one who is probably the father of the modern zombie. And I will say, thinking about it some more, you definitely do have a lot of zombie films popping up throughout the early 70s and things like that. And I'll say, the reason I'm including this one in kind of that birth of the modern zombie is because it was a huge success. And it was a big hit, and people loved it, and were watching it. Well, I don't know if people loved it, but it um, absolutely was having people talking, and it's the one that people remember. I will say, though, that something like The Plague of the Zombies, which is a Hammer film and probably not even nearly as well-known, does have a lot of those elements of the modern zombie. You know, we have a plague that's in the town. We have recently deceased coming back to life. But I think in the end, it's been a little bit since I've seen that one, but I think it does have to do with voodoo at the end of the day. But yeah, you do get more of that modern zombie and takes on those films in the um, early 70s with stuff like, I mean, you even got like Tombs of the Blind Dead, which those are the blind dead. They're not really zombies. They're, they're still like skeletal creatures going after people. But you have stuff like I Drink Your Blood and other things like that. But 
for all intents and purposes, I would say this is the most successful zombie movie until Dawn of the Dead came out in the late 70s. And then, of course, I don't really think zombie movies really blew up until we get into the... Um, I mean, you do have, like, a, a zombie thing going on with um, Italy as well, but I don't think they really blew up to this extent until really, the like, the aughts is when we get an oversaturation of zombies. But I think this is where you can trace it back to. And let's talk about the effect for a minute that it would have on Romero's career. I mean... This pretty much sets him on a trajectory to work with a lot of these different types of films. His most popular uh, films are mostly zombie films. I mean, you can count Creepshow, and he's certainly done other stuff like uh, Martin and the Crazies, and, uh, you know, he paired up with Argento on Two Evil Eyes. So he's done a lot of solid movies, but for sure the ones that he's known for are... Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. I would say Land of the Dead is a little underrated. And it's got, it's got a good cast and I think a good story. So, But that's mainly what has been his driving factor, whether that's good or bad. I mean, yeah, he's been able to make money off of it, but is it something that he actually wanted to get pigeonholed into? I don't know. Oh, and one more thing before I move on. I can't remember. I said he didn't use the word zombie or anything in the script for this one. The word they're using here is um, ghouls. And <laughs> ghouls is the term that you'll hear throughout the film. And that's really what they're described as. I mean, these creatures, they may be affected by radiation from space, but they are essentially called ghouls because they are, you know, they're rising from the grave. They're feasting on human flesh. They're ghouls. So I actually like that. I think that's a cool term in general and doesn't really get used today, but I do like that he used that one. So let's get in and talk about the movie a little bit and not just its impact on the industry. And I wanted to talk about what I mentioned a little bit ago, which were the radio and the TV broadcast. Now I really like these parts of the movie. I think they're fun. I think they break it up a little bit and really I think they're they're well done to an extent. Here's the thing is, I don't know, I'm thinking from like our local broadcast and stuff and like local TV stations, they're usually not the best, but they're usually not stuttering over their words or tripping over their words, but I'm not sure what it was like back in the 60s, so I'm not sure if this is a realistic depiction or if it was just extras kind of flubbing their lines, I don't know, but there is a lot of human error in these these segments. So I don't want to really judge it on that, but these are the only sources of information we're getting from the outside world. The people inside of this house have no idea what's going on. They have no idea what to think. Again, at first, when they get the radio on, they're, when it's just Ben and Barbara, they're saying, hey, stay in place, don't go anywhere. And that's what they tell you at first. We don't really know a whole lot. And then we get to the section where they're, I think maybe on the radio even, they're talking about NASA being brought in. And I think that's your first hint that, well, this is weird. Why are they talking about NASA? And that's where it all kicks off is this NASA part. And I really love that they just trickle it out as you go along. They're also talking about early on, is how it's spreading, you know, it's on the East Coast, there's no confirmed 
mention of this west of the Mississippi or anything like that. They named three big cities. I know Miami was one. I think like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia might have been the other ones. I can't remember which cities they specifically named. But they're naming East Coast cities where there's just instances of people going crazy and acting like maniacs and attacking people and eating and devouring people you learn as it keeps going on and then and then when we get the TV for the first time and I don't know how much of this was on the TV or not but they start broadcasting you know they start telling people you need to leave and you need to get to a shelter we know more about these things you can uh, burn them and I don't know if it's here but we do introduce the you know you have to shoot them in the head or burn them, which the burning kind of fell off in the zombie lore, but the shoot him in the head, that's definitely the first time we've heard of that in a film, I believe. But either way, they're broadcasting these areas on repeat of the shelters, evacuation shelters that are guarded, and you can go to them and you're safe. And then it keeps going on and they're interviewing like a military person and some scientists, and this is where we start to get the answers of what's really going on, what they think happened with the probe over Venus, and uh, we think that was a driving force. And It's really cool because we have this one here, and then we have one in Dawn of the Dead 2. I love seeing the outside world opinion in these little like TV and radio moments that go on. So yeah, I absolutely love how they uh, string along the information, but we're not the only ones getting something out of these broadcast and telecast the characters are pretty much following whatever they hear on the radio and the TV. And I don't know if Romero is trying to say something in there or if it's just, who knows? He's making a film that he thinks is about a revolution. So maybe he is saying, you know, those people who try to do what they're told are going to, you know, they're not going to succeed in the end. But whatever it is, When they say stay in place, what do they do? They start trying to board up the place and keep anyone from coming in. And then the next step is when they're telling people to get to a shelter, they devise a plan to try and get to a shelter. And of course, that plan goes horribly wrong. But you have to think, and the characters have no way of knowing this. They haven't been outside for a long time when they do try to escape and come up with their plan. And they also haven't, you know, all the only thing they have of the outside world is what's going on on the radio, what's going on on the TV. That's all they get. But it's almost like every bad thing that happens in this movie to these characters, aside from the little girl zombie who I don't think was able to be avoided, you could probably have minimized damage, but... Most of the time when someone is dying or someone's in trouble, it's because of their own actions and the human element. And I think that is another thing that's carried over into zombies. It's never about the zombies. It's about the humans and how they behave. So, you know, they're told to stay in place. They board the place up. They lock themselves in. The Coopers barricade themselves down in the basement, of course. And then when they're told to get to a shelter, they come up with this plan to go fuel up the truck. And, you know, that goes awry because of a torch that was laid on the ground. And I don't know how, I mean, you're, you're in a pretty dire situation, so your actions can be forgiven, but that has some dire consequences, leaving that torch there. And it leads to some pretty bad death. And then 
you know, they get back inside, and at this point, I mean, the zombies are riled up, they're getting, they're breaking in, they're, I mean, things have gone completely awry, and there's nothing really you can do about it at this point, it just goes down, except for Ben, who, ironically, you know, ends up in the cellar that he was saying, you know, protesting against in the first place, you know, there's no way out of that cellar, anything like that, really, the funny thing is, is, and Mr., Mr. Cooper's pretty belligerent and not acting like a team player or anything like that, for sure. But the smartest thing they probably could have done is go hold up in that basement. Now, when the little girl comes back to life, you're obviously going to have to take care of that situation. And you for sure might lose someone, but you're probably not going to lose everyone. And really, if they would have stayed in that basement, I feel like until... The morning, which again, they have no way of knowing this, but if they just stayed in that basement, if they just stayed inside, didn't try to go anywhere until morning, the, you know, the brigade that's going around shooting everyone in the head, they probably would have seen that there weren't zombies in this house, and you know, if they're downstairs, they're probably not riling up these zombies, but they probably take out the zombies and then go check inside because they mention, you know, some of them were trying to get into a shed and... They went in the shed and there was no one in there, even though they thought there was someone in there. So they're probably going to go in and look, and maybe not, you know, by the time we get to where Ben gets shot in the head, what's happened are these zombies have descended upon the house and they've torn it open, and it looks like it's been ravaged. When they see Ben, it's kind of natural for them to shoot first and ask questions later. It's something to think about. I don't think any rational character could have known all of these things or what to do. But, yeah, the cellar, not such a bad idea. If someone who maybe wasn't so not friendly about it was suggesting the cellar, maybe it would have been a better idea. Maybe it would have worked out. Who's to know? But um, they certainly had no way of knowing someone was coming to help them. So as far as um, if I want to break down the movie into different segments and how I feel about them. As far as the plot and the story, it's a very simple story. I think we have some pretty simple characters, even though that's the thing we go through a lot. And there's a lot of development within the characters. You get to see what, who the characters are to an extent. We don't dig too deep into people. We're obviously not seeing the real Barbara because she's in shock. We are probably seeing the real Coopers coming out, and you don't really get into their daughter or anything, but that's where a lot of the story, the story is separated into two parts. It's those TV broadcasts I talk about, which I think are excellent, how they slow drip and feed you information, and then the rest of the story is given through the characters, how they interact with each other, you're learning how they got there in that situation, you know, what they plan to do, a little bit of their infighting that's going on. Very simple, but very effective. So I really do like the story and where it goes. Um, as far as the characters themselves, again, I think there's just enough there where we learn enough about them. You don't want to get too exposition heavy in a movie like this for sure. Uh, I think we know enough to like the character of Ben, and we like the young couple as well, I would say. Maybe not necessarily when they make some dumb decisions, but, you know, everybody makes dumb decisions, so. None of these characters are really making the smartest decisions all the time, not even Ben. But, you know, you get enough disdain for uh, Mr. Cooper, and you feel enough 
you know, sorrow for the little girl. So I think the characters do their job. I think they're all played decently well. The main cast is. Again, I mentioned the stuff with the reporters and things like that. I don't know if those were, if that's how they wanted it to sound. I mean, it sounds like a lot of these times they're only taking one or two takes. So maybe that's just how it came out. But either way, I do like that part of it. The horror elements, I think, are pretty effective. You still feel the dread and the tension. And again, I think the best scene of horror or the best moment is when the girl rises up and goes after her parents. And then Ben is left to see the aftermath in the basement. But you also have a lot of close-up shots of these zombies munching on their uh, ham covered in chocolate syrup and uh, all kinds of things like that. I think it does a good job of giving you that tension and that dread from the beginning and really puts you on edge and puts you in the scenario. And hey, I actually don't mind the um, the white face, black eye zombie makeup. I think it's pretty cool. I think it is, it's a good thing this was shot in black and white and I think it's done, uh, or I think it's much more effective than the makeup that was done in Dawn of the Dead, which is just ridiculous and over the top, but hey, it's still a good movie too, so... I think the areas that the film is its weakest are, again, is probably in like the music and some of the stock footage and things like that. You'll notice that during the TV stuff, it is filmed like close up on the frame. You're not going to see characters reacting to anything. It's just one continuous shot of the footage, and then you go back to the characters. That's because I'm sure they could not simulate or emulate having a TV broadcast with people watching with the money and the budget they had, but... I think they did an excellent job in stretching the budget. I think they did an excellent job with the film in general. I mean, there's so many good moments and so many iconic moments in this one. And again, like I said, it just kind of drug the indie horror filmmaking, that gritty, grimy style into the limelight and really set it up for success going forward. But that's really all, really about all that I have on... Night of the Living Dead. Um, I really do enjoy this movie. It is, you know, I used to think, I'm debating because it used to be my favorite of the trilogy recently, and I haven't watched Dawn in a few years, so that's the one I probably need to go back to, but I think Day of the Dead might have surpassed this one as my favorite. I don't know, I still love this one. I think all three films are, you know, above a nine. They're all nine aboves. They're all classics, and they're classics for a reason. I think Day of the Dead is maybe the underrated of those ones, but that is such a good movie, and I think it highlights the best of what Romero does, and he sets up these scenarios with these characters, and it's they're all pretty much single-location scenarios, but you really do get to get a sense of how it's like to be in that situation and the dread that those characters feel. Night of the Living Dead is an absolute must-watch if you haven't watched it. And if you haven't watched any of the trilogy, then hey, that's that makes for a great triple feature. But make sure to get in Land of the Dead as well. But I absolutely recommend that you go up, go out and pick up that Criterion Blu-ray if you are a collector and you don't have it. It is the best way to watch it. If not, check it out on HBO Max. I can still say that, I think, until May when they switch over to just Max. As far as plugs and what's coming up next, I think for the next episode, I'm going to do 
a segment looking back on, you know, 100 years of Warner Brothers and specifically their horror films. It is their 100th anniversary as a studio when they started in, you know, 1923. And they're not a studio that's, you know, they're not, they weren't one of the first to get into horror. And they certainly aren't one of the most prolific in the, you know, amount of releases they put out. But they've definitely made an impact in the modern horror landscape. And they also have some older films that are pretty much classics. So I do want to go in and kind of celebrate 100 years of Warner Brothers making films and their horror movies particularly. As far as other shows, I've been doing a lot of recording with Nathan and by myself over on the Phantom Galaxy podcast, and they're doing, you know, Nathan's going, Nathan and Bill are going through a bit of a revamping of that podcast and doing different segments and all that stuff. I've been doing some new movie reviews to do over there, and I've also been starting some solo stuff over there on video games and anime and uh, Nathan is gracious enough to include those in his shows, and hopefully I can record with some people who are into that stuff as well as those two try to broaden the Phantom Galaxy reach and really what they're talking about. I think it's just an excuse really for us to be able to talk about different things other than movies, and me specifically, it's nice to be able to talk about stuff that's not horror movies, so I do enjoy that. You can check those out. I know at the time of this, I have a Scream 6 spoiler review that I did with Nathan over there. And then I don't know if it's out yet, but Nathan and I sat down and reviewed Creed 3, Shazam 2, uh, 65, and Unwelcome. So we talked about those movies. And then I also had some anime segments recorded and, you know, my top... 10 games of 2022, as well as a review of the new Dead Space remake. So all of that will be coming to Phantom Galaxy, along with all their other content. You know, Bill and Nathan doing some reviews, Greg Bench and Nathan doing some reviews. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Phantom Video, of course, was out as well. It's too much to even keep up with. But yeah, Phantom Video is out where Dave, Nathan, and I went through the releases of April and picked some of our favorites. So a lot of big stuff coming from Phantom Galaxy. And then I should have a surprise. I'm not going to say anything about it now, but there should be something revealed soon that I will also be involved with. And that's pretty exciting as well. So let me know what you thought about this anniversary episode. I want to do a few more of these where I really spotlight and talk about specific movies that are having their anniversary. There are some big ones for sure. And there's one that I just can't ignore and have to do. I think I might put up a poll, though, as far as some of these movies and see what you guys want to see. But let me know. Let me know if there's any film that's having a 5 or a 10-year, you know, denomination anniversary this year, whether that's 55 or 15 or whatever it is. Let me know if there's one you'd want to see. I have a couple that I'm pretty sure I'm going to do anyway, but... There are plenty out there, really, of good movies. As far as this show, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages and in the Facebook group at Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I haven't been as active over there probably since the international horror stuff, but I want to get some more stuff up and posting. 
Um, I've really just been, I haven't been watching a ton of movies except for podcasting. And I really do want to get some more stuff over there on those platforms and interact with people more. So I will give that a shot. Um, you can email the podcast at screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com. And with all that being said, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. 